Now that we've finished the book of Revelation, I'm actually going to take a little bit of a break. I'm still going to be teaching on Wednesday nights. I'm just not going to jump into a book study right away. I am going to be looking at a book study pretty soon, but for now, I just want to teach on just anything that I want to. You know, on Mondays, I come in and think, well, I think I'll teach on this, and I want to have the freedom to do that. Now, that'll probably last about a month, two months, and I'll get tired of that. And at that point, we'll start studying the book of Genesis. Now, I'm not going to do it verse by verse. Do you know why I'm not going to do it verse by verse? Because the book of Genesis has 50 chapters in it. A lot of chapters. So instead of studying it verse by verse, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the major events in the book of Genesis and the main characters. Now, I know I said this when we started the book of Revelation, and Gary Stopp called me on this. He said, yeah, but you said we would only go a few months, and we went a year and a half on the book of Revelation, but I truly believe that I can uh, go through the book of Genesis hitting the major events and the main characters in about three months. But you'll have a good understanding of the book of Genesis by the time that we finish. Now, tonight, what I want to do is I want to show you the heart of God. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Luke, the 15th chapter. And while you're turning there, let me explain a few things. In chapter 15, Jesus told three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. And the interesting thing is, he told these three, par three parables one after another. Bam, bam, bam. And he didn't use any transitions or he didn't make any type of application at the end of them. All he did was he just hit one parable after the other. Bam, bam, bam. Now, the key to understanding these three parables, because he doesn't make any application at the end of them, is understanding what precedes these three parables. It's understanding verses 1 and 2. So go ahead, if you don't mind, and uh, look at verse number 1, because we're going to spend quite a bit of time on verses 1 and 2, because if you don't understand verses 1 and 2, you do not understand why he told these three parables. And you're going to miss the entire point of why he was telling these stories. So look at verse number 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. Now let me give you a little bit of background information that you need to know. At the time of Jesus Christ... The Roman Empire stretched from what is now England all the way to what is today India. And to maintain control, Rome ruled with an iron fist. In fact, let me give you an example to illustrate what I'm talking about because I've made that comment quite often. I've talked about Rome being a ruthless empire and ruling with, a, uh, with an iron fist, but you probably don't understand that unless I give you an example. So let me give you an example to illustrate that. During the Third Servile War in 73 to 71 BC, the Romans crucified over 6,000 men along the Appian Way at one time, all the way from Capua to Rome. Now, how many of you have seen the movie Spartacus with Kirk Douglas in it? Basically, that is, that is based on a true story, and it's the story that I just told you. Because this is, was a rebellion by slaves, they had to make sure that the slaves feared them. So when they overcame the slaves that rebelled, they literally took every one of the slaves and they spaced them evenly apart along the Appian Way and they crucified them. Now you need to understand something about crucifixion at the time of Jesus. It was very rare that they actually took Jesus' body down. But they allowed that because of the Jews and they didn't want to leave that there on the high day or the holy day that was coming. But in the other nations, you did not take the person who was crucified down. 
You left them up there until the birds actually picked everything clean and all you saw were skeletons. And so when they came in and crucified these 6,000 men, they stayed upon the crosses until all you saw were skeletons. So that every person who traveled along that road could see every few feet all of these people that had been crucified and you understood one thing. You didn't mess with Rome. If you stepped out of line, they crushed you. And that's how they maintained order. They were very ruthless. Now, to rule this way, you have to have a very large military and you have to spread it throughout the empire. And you also had to be able to rush reinforcements to any place that might be rebelling at the time. So in order to do that, they had to construct over 50,000 miles of what I called superhighways. At least superhighways for their time. What are superhighways? They were actually roads that were paved with stone. Now to pay for all of this, to pay for this huge military that they had spread throughout the empire, and to be, able to, spread, to be able to pay for all of these roads that they built and all of these other things that they built, they had to impose heavy taxes upon the nations that they had conquered. You see, Roman citizens in Italy were exempt from paying taxes. Did you know that? If you were a Roman citizen and you lived in Italy, you didn't pay any taxes. But that meant that the other nations had to pick up the whole tap. And people, it was a big tap. So you had all types of taxes. You had property taxes on the land that you owned and the house that you owned. You had a tax on the crops that you raised if you were a farmer. You had taxes on the goods that you produced if you were a merchant. You had sales tax. You couldn't buy anything or sell anything without there being a sales tax. You had a poll tax. Now, does everyone know what a poll tax is? The older people know what a poll tax is, but the younger people don't. Because... America actually had poll taxes in the South. If you remember, before 19, was it 64? The South had poll taxes which didn't allow the poor white people and the African Americans to vote because you had to pay this tax. And if you couldn't pay the tax, then you couldn't vote. So what a poll tax is, is a tax that's levied on people rather than on property. So basically it was a tax for simply being alive. In fact, if you remember when Jesus before Jesus was born, when Joseph and Mary traveled to Bethlehem, it was because Augustus was taking a census. Why was he taking a census? Because he wanted to make sure that he knew how many people lived there because there was going to be a poll tax. If you were alive, you paid a tax simply because you were alive. And then you had what were called toll taxes. A toll tax is a fixed tax for the privilege of using their roads, their rivers, their crossroads, their bridges. Now, how many of you like to go to Tulsa through the Muskogee Turnpike? You pay the toll, don't you? That's what a toll tax is. And so if you had to travel at all, the taxes ate you up because it wasn't very far before you had to pay a tax. And then you would get on, just like these turnpikes. You get on another turnpike, and then you have to pay another toll. You get on another turnpike, you've got to pay another toll. And that's how it was throughout the Roman Empire. So some biblical scholars estimate that 90% of a household income went to taxes. We better be careful here in America. But anyways, here's the kicker. The collection of the taxes was actually farmed out to individuals. Local individuals would actually bid on the right to collect these taxes in their specific area. And anything that these individuals collected above and beyond what they had bid was theirs to keep. 
So you actually had Jews in Israel that lived in a certain spot and they would come in and they would actually bid for the right to be able to collect the taxes. And anything that they collected above what they bid, if they won the bid, was theirs to keep. And so they became very, very wealthy. Now, what's kind of interesting is tax collectors were hated, especially in Israel. And to the Jews, it was a double whammy. And the reason it was a double whammy is because God had promised them in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that they would be the head and not the tail. And every time you saw a Roman soldier, and every time you saw a toll booth or a place to collect taxes, and every time they came and took their taxes, it just reminded you that you weren't the head, you were the tail. So, for a Jewish man to purchase the right to tax other Jews and enable a godless nation to oppress Israel was unforgivable. In fact, they believed that it was a sin against God. So they were shunned by the majority of society and the religious leaders. Now, here these tax collectors are that are shunned by the religious leaders. The rabbis actually got up in the synagogues and preached against them. Did you know that tax collectors were not allowed to go up on the Temple Mount? You could go as far as the gate of the temple, but you were not allowed to go up on the Temple Mount. And here they are, gathering around Jesus to hear him. And then you've got another group of people that are with them, and they're referred to as sinners. Look back at verse number 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear them. Now, most of us don't understand this because we think that's referring to us. And the reason we think that's referring to us is because we've been raised as New Testament Christian, especially in the Protestant faith. And all of us know that scripture in the book of Romans, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so we tell everyone, you're a sinner. And so when we see that the tax gatherers or tax collectors and the sinners were gathered around Jesus to hear him, you know what we think? Oh, they were people just like us. And the only ones that really didn't like them were the religious leaders. But people, you need to understand, that's not true. When they say sinners, they're talking about a specific group. And they're not people like us. You see, in first century Judaism, sinners referred to a specific group of people and they were made up of two types of people. Those who had jobs that made them unclean, according to the law. Jobs like being a pimp, a prostitute, a slave trader, a thief, etc. And then, those who were born with deformities or abnormalities were also considered to be sinners because that meant that they must have sinned in order to be born that way. How many of you remember when the disciples asked Jesus this question? Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, why did they ask Jesus that question? Because all the rabbis and all of the religious teachers of that time were teaching that if you had a child that was born blind or you had a child that was born with a deformity or maybe they were retarded, it's because you had sinned or maybe the child had sinned in the womb. And so you had a group that were actually referred to as sinners. Those who had the type of jobs that made them unclean and those who had deformities or some type of abnormality. And these were the outcasts of the society. Now, let me say something about tax collectors and sinners. These two groups were never allowed in the temple. Beggars could go to the gate of the temple. Tax collectors and all these others could go to the gate of the temple, and most of the beggars went to the gate of the temple, and the reason they went to the gate of the temple is because they got more uh, alms. People would give more and they could collect more money. 
Because at least they were trying to reach out to God. Yes, they must have sinned or their parents must have sinned, but at least they're trying to atone for their sins. But here's the interesting thing. They could not go up on the Temple Mount. So these two groups were alienated from God. They weren't allowed to come inside the place of worship. They weren't allowed to hear the scriptures read or for the scriptures to be taught. And this was the type of people that Jesus was attracting. These were the type of people that were gathering around Jesus to hear him. Tax collectors and sinners. Now look at verse number 2. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now basically this is an accusation, people. When they murmur this, I want you to notice that they don't have any explanation after it. Why? Because everyone knows what they're saying. This is basically an accusation. Now, you need to understand something about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to understand what this accusation was. You see, they believed that God wanted them to not only keep the law, but also to separate themselves from anything that was unclean and to maintain what they referred to as ritual, ritual purity. And they also believed that uncleanness could be transferred from contact with anything that was unclean. Maybe you've heard a pastor talk about the Pharisees that would go through the marketplace, and when they came upon sinners, what would they do? They would kind of bind their clothing real close to them, and they would walk funny to make sure that they didn't touch anything that was unclean. Now, why did they do that? Because they believed that uncleanness could be transferred by contact with anything that was unclean. So the rabbis, the religious leaders, and they taught all of the other Jews not to have physical contact or fellowship with tax collectors and sinners lest they make you unclean also. That's why the tax collectors and the group known as sinners were ostracized. This is why it was such a big deal. Because Jesus was a rabboni. He was a master. He was a rabbi. And now he comes along and he more than anyone as a man of God should have known that you can transfer this uncleanness to you and you can defile yourself. So when Jesus allowed the tax collectors and the sinners to gather around him, all of the religious leaders were shocked, and that's why they threw out this accusation. Because they believed that by coming into contact with them, Jesus was defiling himself. He was making himself unclean. And according to their theology, if Jesus was a true man of God, he would have kept them from coming into contact with him. He would have ostracized them just as they did. But because he didn't ostracize them, now he's unclean. And he's alienated from God just as they are. And all that did was prove to them that Jesus was not a man of God. And that the people should not be listening to this man. And that's why Jesus told these three parables. One after another. Bam, bam, bam. No segue between them. No transition from one into the other. No application of it. Why? Because all he's doing is trying to explain to these people that their beliefs, their doctrine is wrong. They think they know God and they think they know what pleases God. They have no idea. So he's going to teach them what the heart of God is. And that's the purpose of these three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. Look at verses 3 and 4. We're just going to basically just glean over these if you don't mind. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. 
Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now, as I said, the Pharisees believed that God wanted them to keep the law. They believed that God wanted them to separate themselves from anything that was unclean. All you had to do was go back to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus makes it very plain. What is clean and what is unclean. What they're to abstain from and what is okay to partake of. And so they took this to mean that, hey, we're to separate ourselves from anything that's unclean. And that God wanted them to maintain their ritual purity. They also believed, and this is the kicker and what, what caused them to ostracize people. They believed that uncleanness could be transferred through contact with anything or anyone that was unclean. So, of course, they had nothing to do with all of these that they considered to be unclean. For fear of becoming unclean themselves. Now... Because of that, they were willing to let those who were considered unclean be damned. That was the attitude. You might call them the Calvinist of first century Judaism. They're predestined to go to hell. They were born this way. There must have been a sin. They've chosen this profession. They're unclean. You know, they're this way. We're just going to leave them alone. They're going to hell. They're not allowed to come into our synagogues. They're not allowed to come to the, t- to, to the temple mount. They're not allowed to hear the scriptures read. They're not allowed to hear the scriptures be taught. And here Jesus comes along, and he starts encouraging all of these people, come on over here. Why? Because he wants them to know it is not God's will for anyone to be damned. So he steps in and he says, shame on you. If you had a sheep that was lost... Would you leave the 99 who weren't lost to go looking for that sheep? Of course you would, because you do it every day. Many of you own sheep, and you send your children out to be shepherds, and if they lose one, you tell them you need to go find it. And when they go find that one, they rejoice over it. And the thought is this, how much more is a man worth? Look at verse number 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. What what he means by that is not that he cares for them more than the 99. No, he's not saying that at all. What he's saying is, we don't think anything about it when these 99 are here and they're around us. But when one is lost, what does a parent do? A parent begins to panic. Where's my child? So they go out and they look for that child. And when they find them, they rejoice. Why? Because that one has now been found. And then Jesus rose right on into the next parable. It's the parable of the lost coin. It's in verses 8 through 10. And this parable has the very same moral. It's not any different. The woman lost a coin. And she searched and she searched until she found the coin that was lost. She didn't say, oh, well, I have nine. I don't need the other one. No, she lost a coin. And so she looked and looked until she found, and then she rejoiced that she found the one lost coin. And we'll do that. How many of you have ever lost a large sum of money? And I'm not talking about $10,000, $20,000. If you lost that much money in one place, you know, you're just not very responsible. But how many of you maybe had $100 or $200, and you put it somewhere? And a few days later, you're going, where did I put that? And now it begins to scare you. What's kind of interesting, Lisa doesn't do this anymore, but there was a time when she would take some of her jewelry and she would put it into the pockets of uh, some of her clothes. 
she wasn't wearing it. And so what was interesting is we had a garage sale. And so she decides to sell these clothes, and she forgot about that. And so this lady buys a dress, and she comes back, and she says, Excuse me, is this yours? Now, you need to understand something. At one time, we owned Meg's Jewelry Store, so we're not talking about cheap jewelry. We're talking about very expensive jewelry. Let me tell you, we rejoiced over that. Why did we rejoice? Because our, our hearts went, into, you know, went into, into your throat. It's like, oh, my gosh. And you see, they had the wrong attitude. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, these were just the throwaway people. These were the outcasts. These are going to hell. These are going to be damned. It's no big deal. And he said, you don't understand. That's not the way God looks at it. You think that that coin is valuable? How much more valuable is a human life? And then Jesus rose right on into the next parable. It's the parable of the prodigal son. It's in verses 11 through 32. That's way too many verses to read for tonight. There's so many things that we could learn from that parable. We're not going to do that. All I'm going to do is point out one thing. The older brother was highly upset that his prodigal brother had come home. And I want you to notice the dialogue between the father and the older brother. The one who had always been good. The one who had always done what the father had said. So the one who was rebellious and left and wandered away and actually had become unclean, when he returned, here's the dialogue that happened between the father and the older son. Look at verses 29 through 32. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and never once, I'm adding my own, did I disobey your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. I don't think he's just talking about physically. I think what he's saying is, you're always with me. And you know, it's so true. Our children are always with us. So you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead. And he's alive again. He was lost. And he's been found. Now, in verse number 31, I want you to notice what the father said to the son specifically. He said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. Now, did you notice that? Now, we want to spiritualize this, but he's not spiritualizing in this because in first century Judaism, they understood the father only had two sons. You would divide the inheritance three ways depending on how many sons you had. And the reason you divided it three ways is because the oldest son always got a double portion. So if you had four sons, you divided it five ways. The oldest got two-fifths. If you had three sons, you divided it four ways. And the oldest son got a half, which is two-fourths. Does that make sense? And the other two just got a fourth. But the reason the oldest son got that is because it was his responsibility to be the patriarch of the family. It was his responsibility to take care of the mother, and it was his responsibility to take care of any of the sisters who weren't married yet. And that's why they got an extra portion of their inheritance. And that's what Judaism said. Now, if you remember the story of the prodigal son, the thing that the prodigal son did, he was the younger son. He came and said, I want my inheritance now. 
And the father didn't want to give it to him, but he realized this is a rebellious son, and so he actually allowed him with his free will to have his inheritance, and he went off and he squandered it. And so now when he comes back, when the father says to the older son, he says, and everything I have is yours, he's not talking spiritually. He's not saying this figuratively. What he's saying is, I understand. Everything that's left, he's already spent his inheritance. This is yours. So in other words, the fattened calf that I killed for this banquet is from the herd that the older brother actually owned. The wine that they were drinking was from the vineyard that the older brother owned. Why? Because the prodigal son had already been given his inheritance. So everything the father owned from that point on was the older brother's inheritance. So he's saying, son, everything I own is yours. What he's actually doing is reassuring the older son that he's not going to take away his inheritance and give it unto him. He's saying, son, why are you getting so upset? This is still yours. He's had his inheritance. I'm not going to take away yours and give it to him. Why are you so upset? So why was the brother so upset? Because he was still upset after the father reassured him. He was upset because he saw things from the wrong perception. In his perception, the younger brother's actions were reprehensible. And he didn't deserve to be welcomed home. In his mind, he had given up his right to be part of the family by what he'd done. And to see his father celebrate like he did, just because he'd returned, made him mad. Because in his mind, the younger brother didn't deserve to be part of the family. And that is how it is with human nature. You know, so many times we look at the brother that has caused so much heartache and done so much, and we've seen our parents give and give and give and give. And after a while, you think, they've lost their right to be part of the family. We get to thinking that we earn our right to be a part of God's family. And that's what had happened to the religious leaders and the Pharisees. They believe that the reason they had a right relationship with God and the reason they had a part in the family of God is because they had earned it. They had obeyed him. They'd always done this thing. What the father wanted to do was to reassure the older son, listen, I'm not taking anything away from you that's not already yours. It's yours, buddy. But you need to understand something. You need to see it from my perspective. And so the father tried to get the older son to see it from his perspective. Your brother is also my son, whom I love. And though he'd left the family, now he's returned. How can I not? Because even though you're always with me, he was always with me. And at one time I thought he was dead, and now I find he's alive, and he's returned. How can I not celebrate? And people, this is the type of love that God has for those that are outcast. Yes, those of us that maybe were raised in church and we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior at an early age. And we've been in church all of our life. And we've always obeyed the word. Then we look at those that are tattooed all over and studded everywhere that you can imagine. Even in places you don't want to see. And you know, you just look at them and you think, man, they've had a rough life. And what do you think? They don't deserve to be part of the family of God. And God looks down and says, man, you don't understand my heart. I'm not going to take anything away from you. 
We are saved by grace, but we're rewarded by works. And one day you're going to be rewarded. Do you think by me letting them come into the family of God that you're not going to get your rewards? Honey, you're going to get your rewards. You're going to get your mansion. Some of you are going to get a cabin. But you're still going to get it. They're not going to take it away. But you need to understand my heart. It doesn't matter how far into sin they've gone. I still love them. And that's why I sent my son Jesus to find them and to bring them home to me. Now, if that's you, if you've had a tough life, I want you to understand, you've paid for it just like the younger one did. You can look back and just kind of see how your life played out, and you can see you've had a life of hell. I can look at certain people, I can tell you they've had a rough life. Now, you can look at me and you can tell I've had an easy life. You know, I'll be honest, I've lost my hair and I've gained weight, but you can look in my face and you can see. He's not had a hard life. And I look in some people's face and I can just tell by looking at them. No amount of makeup can cover it up. Doesn't matter what they do to their hair, you can still see it. You can just look and see, man, that person's had a rough life. And we get to thinking they don't matter to God and people that's not true. God will never ostracize them. They're never outcasts. He never refers to them as sinners the way that we do. No matter what you've done, Jesus will forgive you and welcome you into the family of God. Now let me say this because this is very important. Will some people be rejected? Yes. But the only people that will be rejected by God are those that have rejected him. The only ones that will be rejected by Jesus are those who reject Jesus. And the only reason is because God is just. And if you tell Jesus, no, I don't want you to pay for my sins, what you're saying is, I want to pay for my own sin. And therefore, you must pay for your own sin because God is just. All sin must be punished and all righteousness be, re be rewarded. So even after you pay for all your sin, you'll never be resurrected and get to live with God. Because only those which do those things, talking about the law in Leviticus 18.5, will live. But for us, who understand that we're sinners, we need Jesus, we receive him, doesn't matter what we've done, doesn't matter if you've had an abortion, doesn't matter if you killed someone, doesn't matter how many drugs you've taken, doesn't matter how many people you've cheated, I want you to understand something. If you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and truly want him to be Lord, all of that's forgiven and you're welcome back into the house and family of God. And that is what Jesus was trying to get over to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. You have the wrong perception of God. You are the older brother. You're mad because God's excited that these people that you think are outcasts, that aren't worthy, that don't deserve it, get to come in to the kingdom. And I've never understood that. Because it's not taking anything away from us. God's got more than enough to give us exactly what we deserve and more.